Here's what I want to talk about as we move forward and kind of catch you up just so we all know. Matthew chapter 25, Job chapter 38. We've talked about it consistently of what is the kingdom of God. Here's my definition. My definition if somebody asks you, what is the kingdom? Simplest answer I could give you. It is how God governs the universe and how God governs the earth. It's his laws, it's his ways, it's his nature playing out in a realm of the universe and playing out its realm in earth. What we've been looking at are the 12 different ways, the limits, that Job scripture. Do you know the limits and the laws that regulate the universe? So I listed 12 things that I feel like are boundaries and limits that God sets, but that also reveals to us the kingdom. And tonight we're going to talk about the promised land. Not in depth, we're going to talk about the seed of it. And uh, as we move forward through the next several ones, especially worship, social life, and communal life, and kingdom life, we'll definitely pick up more thoughts about this uh, topic called the promised land. Let me throw this to you. I, I sometimes go back and forth like, should I throw this to you? Because the worst thing for a preacher is to stand up and think what you're going to say is really good and it doesn't turn out good. But I had two conversations this week. And the thing that I made mention of, I said, in all my years of studying the Bible, aside from the moment God gave me a revelation about the book of Genesis, and I began to become a Genesis fan to believe that out of Genesis flows every root, every seed of everything you would ever want to know from God is in the 50 chapters of Genesis. Whatever you want to know about God, go back. That revelation that came to me years ago shifted my entire way of studying the Bible. It shifted what I thought about things, and I began to build off of that. Well, as I looked at this this week and I saw the topic of the promised land, I began to pray over it. I had thoughts, things that I felt like I would share. And, uh, but as I always do, I go, okay, I know what I'd like to share, but let me pray on it. And I made this comment, and I'm going to really throw it out there because I, I have assessed it to go, hey, do I really believe this? And I do. Uh, I believe what I'm going to share tonight for me has been one of the most eye-opening revelations that I've had about the Bible. There are things that I'm going to teach you that I've always believed, and I feel like if you would have put me on a stage and said, debate this topic, I feel like I could debate the topic. But it's just like in one message, it all, it, for me, you may have already been there and that's good, I, thank God. Um, but for me, it was an aha moment. It was a, how did I never see this before? It makes so much sense. The Bible makes sense. The Old Testament makes sense. All these weird stories about tattoos and don't wear glasses and don't let midgets serve. I mean, just the weird Levitical laws that you read that just blow your mind. Uh, that you try to argue over and reason of, of why would God say these things. It just, a light went off. I called mom. I'm like, Lord, let me share this with you. I called some friends. Let me share this with you. This is, so I'm going to do that tonight. And I pray it blesses you as it blessed me. Genesis chapter 11 is where we start, where we left off last week. To really understand what's going on is we have to stop trying to understand the Bible inside individual stories. That's good, but individual stories don't make as much sense alone as they do in part of the whole. 
Like, how could David be a man after God's own heart when he murdered a dude and slept with his wife? The story itself, we... How did, oh, I don't understand this. How could Uzzah just touch the ark to steady it with good intentions and just drop dead? And your brain's like, oh, I just don't understand this. How could God let Saul do these things? How could God let David have multiple wives? And now if you don't take the whole of the government of God, you can pull out a section and go, well, polygamy is good. You can pull out sections of the Bible to basically back anything you would want to believe because the Bible is such a broad thing that individuality can you pretty much could just pick and choose a scripture to validate what you believe. But what I think is true is you cannot take the scope of God's government to validate anything. The scope of his government validates what you believe. It will determine whether what you believe is right or wrong based on the whole scope of his government. And what I want to share with you tonight, I believe, is the foundational scope of the entirety of God's government. Where Jesus, it'll make more sense what he was doing. Why? Beyond just he came to die for sins, the laws, the rules, the rituals. Uh, so here it is. We start here. If you just take the story of Babel, it's just the story. Genesis eleven four, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in heaven. And let us, and I'm in yellow, I've highlighted it for you. This is a weird phrase. If you teach on selfishness, it's a great, it's a great text. Let us make a name for ourselves. And I taught this last week, lest we be scattered, that word scattered, over the face of the earth. Here's a question that I pose to myself. Last week, a little bit, I tried it and ended on God's, glory, God's kingdom wants to fill the earth. But tonight, I want to take it one step. I think I even alluded that we would go deeper tonight. What, this was my question this week, what is God's governing reason? Now, we know the reason why he scattered them. It's like, yeah, they're not doing what I want them to do, and I need them to go do it, right? Like, that's the baseline of the story. They're building a tower. They shouldn't. They need to scatter. Confuse their language. Adios. Y'all get out of here. It's great. It preaches well. But my question was the governing reason behind that. Why would God, in a governing, an overall government of God, why would God need to do this? Why would he need to scatter them? It seems like he could, if he kept them close... He could manage them better. Be a lot easier just to keep everybody at Babel and just kind of manage all these weird people. But he just scattered them and now the whole earth is corrupt. Now, I thought you wanted to fill the earth with your glory. And here's my thinking, but you just filled the earth with evil. Like none of these people were doing your will. And you just sent them to the othermost parts of the earth to do what? To promote the devil's kingdom? That's what I'm thinking. Like... It seems to me if you want to fill the earth with your glory, you keep all the weird people together in a huddle and you, you don't let them corrupt. So the moment God pushes them out corrupt and sends them to the uttermost parts of the earth, you, from a, uh, a warfare perspective, you're like, you just lost the battle, man. You sent all the opposing team to fill the earth. You don't even have your own people. Who, who's your team? Now in that question... Everything begins to shift because out of scattering everybody to the uttermost parts of the earth, 
I started pondering what does the scattering of the people accomplish for God. And out of these, uh, I believe, seven thoughts is where we're going to go tonight. Thought number one, I'm going to run through them all pretty quickly because it's not the depth of what I want to teach. Number one, the moment God pushes them out, humans are lumped into language groups and those individual language groups filter off into the parts of the world. Now what God did not do for us is to tell us what kind of sins went with those things. Because obviously this is not important to God. He didn't say, hey, east went all the perverted people and west went all the narcissists. The way he classified the scattering was not by sins but by language. That's powerful. Because by the time we get to the New Testament, what we typically do as religious people is classify your faith levels based on your sins. How many do you have? Are you really bad or are you kind of good or do you have a few weaknesses or a ton? The way God classifies it is I can tell who's on my team by the language they speak. So if I, speaking by the Spirit of God, you would know I'm on God's team. So that I could have some weak areas in my life, as we all do, but I speak the language of heaven. I am in tune with the Spirit. However, I could be super religious, cast out demons, perform miracles in your name. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because you don't have my language. Does that start making sense? All right, so the first thing he did... He scattered language groups and they formed together, they migrated, and they filled the earth. So let me show you this just so you can see it. So from the Tower of Babel, if you want your head to hurt, (laughs) I started studying it and I said, no, no, just ain't going there. You go Google the origin of language. Mind-blowing. Language is powerful. God wasn't playing when he picked language. Go go study the root language of all languages. Well, according to the Bible, all the languages came out of Babel and they just started migrating all over the place. They just, some north, south, east, and west. But what we know, we, we know they didn't go according to their sins. They went according to their languages. And then the next thing that happened out of that, uh oh, sorry, out of that was that the language groups merged into people groups. It's still that way today. Languages jump up together and they form into people groups. We would call them cities, towns, communities. They talk the same language, the same lingo, the same, uh, you know, no matter what it would be, whether it's, it's slang or what, the languages will always form into people groups. That's what we are right here. You're at Believer's Church. That's the church. We speak a language, and that language that we're speaking here has gathered you together. You like the language that we speak. And it comes in, and you go, dude, I like that language. I'm going to line myself up, and we become a people group called the church. Well, after that, people groups consolidate into nations, 
That's nothing deep to that. That's just what happens. You, you get people groups, English-speaking people, have consolidated. And here's the weird thing. You have consolidations of languages in Georgia. You go to South Georgia, they talk totally different than they do up here. You go over the state line over there and you get into Alabama, man, Alabama talks totally different than Pennsylvania and New Jersey where you go up to New Jersey and you go to Puerto Rico. What? Well, that's America. We're a nation, but we're a nation of languages and people groups. And then we form under that banner something a little bigger because we have a common goal and it's the nation. So what's happening? God's smart. God pushed these languages out knowing that when he pushed them to scatter them out, they would gather back together like Babel because they could speak a common language, they would build a town, and then in the town they would form their nation. Now, to form a nation, you got to have a government. And here's what the weird thing is, no matter where you go, I went to some Panama Islands years ago that called the Cunayana Islands, and the best I can give you, got to be old to know this, Gilligan's Island, that's what it's like. Gilligan Island, it, no, no running water, no electricity, huts, you sleep in a hammock, and you ride little canoes from island to island to share the gospel. So it's really, really hardcore missions. But on that mission field, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of, you know, the Panama, in the middle of the ocean, little islands, there was one dude that lived on an island by himself. A dude. A one dude in the middle of nowhere on an island with his own little hut. I don't know if he's mad at people. I don't know if somebody kicked him off. I don't know. But we decided, because what we heard is you can go. There's a, there's a shipwreck off the side of his island, and you can go to this guy's island, and you can swim at that shipwreck. We're like, let's do it. So we get in a little skiff boat, and we ride across the ocean. We find the island. The little guy's sitting there in his little chair with his hut, and he's got his little skirt on, and we pull the boat up. And when we pull the boat up, they say, oh, by the way, the rule is, if you want to swim and get the thing, you have to give him $5. Like one man on his own nation had his own government. <laughs> like, what is he going to do? Not, he's going to shoot me if I don't pay him. I don't know, but I, I ponied up. So know this. Everybody that consolidates, whether it's one man on an island forming his own nation, they will always have a government. It's the only way it can function or it's chaos. Whether that's a tribal chief, whether it's a governor, whether it's a, a pharaoh, whether it is a king, or whether it's a president, it really doesn't matter. Every nation will have a government. Those governments, to establish themselves, weird as it though may be, they elect kings. So just follow, follow with me already what's going on. To have a government, somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to crack the whip. Somebody's got to put the people in jail that don't obey. So we're going to elect a king. Are you starting to pick up what's happening now? Because what's happening now is God is setting it up for himself. When he scatters everybody, and you're like, dude, you just ruined the whole world with these corrupt people of languages. God's like, you don't think like I think. Because I'm scattering them into languages of people groups that will become nations of governments of kings. 
because I'm moving myself on earth to be a nation of priests and kings that has a government that brings in the king to rule. And all I'm doing is setting the system up perfectly. Now here's where it gets super interesting. The next thing is that every king takes dominion over people. It's kind of weird that we go right back to the Garden of Eden. You're going to take dominion. You were supposed to do it over the serpent, but now you're going to do it over each other. You're going to rule over each other. It's, it's, where, king, it's where all the wars and all the fights, as you read through the Bible, everybody's fighting each other. You've got to go take Jericho. You've got to conquer Ai. You, you've got to conquer these governments. And then kings, people, and nations war to make a name for themselves. Whether that's Babylon conquering the Israelites, Egypt taking them in slavery, the end result of pushing them, the end result of scattering them is they would still make a name for themselves. So when God says at Babel, oh, they're going to make a name for themselves, let's scatter them, the end result is of course they are. They're simply going to build little tower of Babels all over the world. You're just going to take this huge one away, but they're still going to go. They're going to migrate together. They're going to form little groups. They're going to create them a government. They're going to create monuments. They're going to elect them somebody in charge, and they still won't do your will because they still will fight to be famous. They'll try to kill each other, take over, take over each other's territories, and God's like, yeah, I'm not even concerned about that. And I would think, why wouldn't you be concerned about that? Like, that just seems like you, in your decision, you just made 200 other Tower of Babel problems. One problem, one big problem is better than a thousand little ones, isn't it? Come on, God. And then God's like, Mark, you don't think like I think. Your wisdom is not my wisdom. And just know this about God. We know it. We've been in church long enough. But maybe in this story, we're not thinking this way. God causes all things to work together to the good. Now, my belief to the good is that his government will be in place in your life. That's my thinking behind it. Now, what I want is to go through it one more time and just begin to kind of pull out this is going to become, the scattering at Babel is going to become the, um, how shall I say it, the, the preface of the entire Bible of what is going to start playing out. This moment is going to be the, the table of contents for the rest of the Bible. This moment of scattering language groups and people groups and, and nations and governments and kings and priests and rituals and all the things that are going to be taking place, it's nothing more than God setting the story for us. The story that from this moment to the rest of the Bible, you're going to start seeing these strange interactions of humans with God. He's done killing them off. What he's going to do now, now, in Genesis 6, he killed them off, but nothing changed with government. Their hearts were still evil. They still murdered each other. They still killed each other. They were still perverted. So in, in the story of Noah, even though there was the government of the fellowship of the righteous, the moment they came off, God still has not established his earthly government yet. So they gather, he scatters them, and now in this moment of seven things, 
We're going to start watching the rest of the Bible play out, so let's do it. Here's my thought. Out of Babel, God shall select a language group. That will become a people group. That will develop into a nation that will have God as their king. Thus, God will make a name for himself throughout the world. So the moment God just goes, all right, shoot. And they're like, oh, good, good, good. And they go, oh, and they go. And everybody's got their language. God's like, all right, you guys ready? Well, it sure does look like you just messed the whole thing up. Messed the whole thing up. I'm about to blow your mind. So what are you going to do? And God says, well, the thing I'm going to do is begin to build my earthly government. Out of this moment, I'm going to build my earthly government. How are you going to do that? I guess they're communicating. How are you going to do that in your wisdom, in your, your infinite godness of your highness? You're, you've already proven you're over all the angels. You've already proven you can kill anybody you want to kill because they were disobedient. You've, but, but what are you talking about? What are you doing now? Oh, no, 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 no. Now. Now what's going to happen is I'm going to establish my government on earth so that people will understand who I am. And God starts out to build the kingdom. Now, this is my thinking. My thinking is that everything until this point has been God working with individuals. Adam, Enoch, Noah. What God is about to do, however, is shift from individuals and he's going to shift into working with a people group that will become a nation that will begin to scatter to take over the world. If you ever wanted to know the power of the seed principle, God is going to take one man and out of one human being, he's going to bless the entire world. So don't ever think it's just a dollar. Oh, it is in the system of our government but a dollar in God's government, when it hits the kingdom, it multiplies. It's why I always teach you can never outgive God. You're broke, best thing you can do is give to God. Because the moment the seed hits the kingdom, it multiplies. And yet it's hard to tell broke people to give. I don't have it. Well, then you won't have seed because you have to plant to get it. So watch what God does. God scatters it. We're like, why? Why did you do that? Because what I'm going to do is go back to, to day one. I'm going to go back to the beginning to where I told you every seed reproduces after its kind. And what I'm going to do is pick a human that will reproduce after me. And so God is weird. There's... To build the kingdom, there was the choosing of a people that had a language. Anybody want to guess who it is? All right, here we go. This is the account of Shem's family. This is Genesis 11. This is at the end of Genesis, so after they're all scattered. So the moment all the families scatter, and they go into the other, you can read it, they go into different parts of the world, the languages scatter to different parts of the world. 
The next thing we get is this weird, well, this is the account of Shem. And it begins to pick a family line. Doesn't seem that powerful at first. But then it goes on, uh, what, about 17 verses later and says, now this is the account of Terah. We're getting a little more narrow. Who is the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran? And Haran is the father of Lot. And at the end of this chapter where God scattered them seemingly to make a mess, what we come out with is it didn't make a mess because God is going to choose a dude, an idol worshiper dude, a dude whose daddy really wasn't even pressing into God. He made idols for all the other gods. And God's like, I don't care. I'm going to pick a dude. And when he picked him, his name wasn't even Abraham. It was just Abram. But this guy, weird, this dude, by the time we get to the end, this dude will blow your mind. A random guy. A random guy that is, if you read the stories about him, it's like, man, he's crazy. He's a warrior. He kills people. He's, I, I did a research on him one time, and we've got kind of the vacation Bible school, little Abraham carrying Isaac. You know, just sweet, looks kind of like me, just tender little grandpa. But in the historical research I did of that time, the history of the time period that when he lived, he was one of the most feared people of the time because he was so wealthy and so powerful that nobody could touch him. Oh, we read it when he just walks in to deliver Lot and just destroys an entire army and just comes back and goes, all right, I got him. Here's all the spoils. Just kind of like, that's eh, nothing. A warrior. God picks this guy. By the time we get to the New Testament, here's weird. This man will be called the father of the faith. If you ever want to know what is faith, you need to go to this dude. He's the father of all of it. And he evidently doesn't have his act together. So if you think faith is having your act together... It's why God can use the strangest of broken people and we wonder, how can God use that person? And God's like, because they have faith. Yeah, but they're not perfect. What? Do you think that's what I was looking for? So he pulls this dude out. Now watch, here's where it gets turned. And the Lord said to Abram, here's where we talk about the land of promise, leave your native country your relatives and your father's family and go to the land I'll show you. Now when God pulled on Abraham, there's Iraq. If you look kind of in the middle under Lebanon, you'll see what is later going to become the promised land. But whatever happened, Abraham's clan and language migrated down toward Kuwait, Jordan area, and he was settled there, and this is the historical location of the land of Ur. That's where he was from. So God picks this dude kind of in the middle of nowhere, a little spot in the middle of nowhere, and, uh, and he kind of pulls him out, and he goes, all right, I'm going to take this guy. Now, now picture this from heaven. All over the world are these people groups of languages and governments and kings and nations and God sees this little dude and says, all right, he's going to be mine. What are you going to do with him? Oh, it's going to blow your mind. And once you understand what he's going to do with the guy, every story in the Bible starts making sense. 
Here's what he does with him. That people group, which is Abraham, the language ultimately, it wasn't his original language. If you go study languages in the root, it was a derivative of what will later become Hebrew. It's why the the Hebrews, the Jews, it becomes their language. So God has singled himself a language. It will be the language of God, which is weird. The language of God will kind of be known as Hebrew. It will be the language at least of his people, the people that God chose. Even in Israel right now, we call God's people, the Jews, they speak a language of Hebrew. I'm not saying there's not other dialects. but So God picks a language and he picks a guy named Abraham. Now here's the thing, that guy, that one dude... Show you God. The one dude picks a dude that can't even have kids. I mean, I'd at least like a fertile dude with a fertile wife that already had several kids to kind of give me a little heads up on this might be possible. I kind of got a guy with 12 kids. That gives me a lot of hope. God's like, no, the dude I want to pick, I want his wife to be so old she can't even have a baby. And as a matter of fact, when I tell him he's going to have a baby, I'm not even going to let that happen until he's nearly 100. Why? Because I'm proving something. What are you proving? My government overrides everything. Right? Why else would you make the dude wait? Why else would you wait till he's 100? Because God is going to begin to establish on earth how his government functions. Watch this. He says to Abraham, this idol-worshiping dude in the middle of Ur, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now we understand why God scattered the languages and created nations and nations of governments because God himself is going to raise himself up a nation. God's going to participate here just like we do it. Except this time, he's going to have his own little nation of people. Now, here's what's weird. Before, God kind of considered all of us his chilling. I'm just going to kill all of you. Save a few of you. You're just humans and you irritate me. However, with this guy, it's weird. Because now, rest of you people, this is mine. These are my people. Rest of you, you're my enemies. This is my people. Which is strange. You would think now God's not concerned about any of them. Oh, he is. He's concerned about all of them, but he's going to come in and he's going to really hone in on, I'm going to create me a nation of people that are mine, called by my name. He's doing something. Now what he says is he says, I, here's, this is weird. I thought you scattered them because they were going to be famous. Now you seem bipolar. (laughs) I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you famous. I'd be thinking, yo, I don't want that. They were, you scattered them, they lost everything. So know this, it's not fame God's nervous about. How popular you get doesn't make God go, God said, I'm going to make you famous, but you'll be a blessing to others. There's that fill the earth. I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and treat you with contempt. Oh, here's what's weird. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. 
So although God scattered everybody, he still thought about them. Although they were working against him as his enemies did not matter. Right now, here's what's strange. The rest of the Old Testament is going to come out of this dude. And what's going to happen through the rest of the Old Testament is God's people warring, God's government warring against all the other governments and kings. And they're all vying for who's the most famous, who's the most powerful. It's what you see in Egypt. Hey, if I'm going to go and tell him to let my people go, what do I tell him? Oh, you tell him I am sent you. Because he's going to ask whose God is this. So now everybody's got a God. We know this by history. Every people group has a God. Every people group has a king or a ruler. Every people group has a government with a nation of subjects that serve the ruler, that serve the government, that serve the God. Whether that's the sun God, the moon God, Neptune. So here's what's strange. God knew that when he scattered them at Babel, They would scatter, set a system, set a government, find them a God. Remember, I taught you there were gods. There were gods out there. God knew that they would pick them. God knew that they would choose the gods. God knew that they would worship the sun god. They would worship the god of the sea. They would worship the god of the moon. They would worship the crocodile god. They would worship whatever god, the cow, whatever they could worship. And God's like, I'm good with that. How could you be good with that? Because I'm going to get me a people group. And I'm going to get me a little group of people and they're going to become a nation. And just like those people worship their God to make them famous, my people are going to worship me and I'm going to make them famous because I'm going to blow the mind of every God on earth like I did in the unseen realm. So what happened in the unseen realm when he kicked Lucifer out? God is reestablishing governmental order now, not in the heavens, but governmental order on earth. And my government will boot out every other God because my people will show forth my power. So now heaven has come to earth. This is why as we start playing this out, God does not play with this. He doesn't give much grace here. Oh, man, you blew it. Okay, here's what we're going to do since you blew it. <laughs> I just want you to know I love you. The earth's going to swallow you up. So everybody get away from him because the entire earth's going to swallow his family up. <laughs> All right, you guys understand how serious I am about my family? Oh, yeah, don't hang out with Cora. <laughs> right? Uzzah touches the ark, drops dead. Oh, you guys understand when I tell you to do something, I mean it. So what God is doing is he's going to establish a government through people where his power will be known. And the Lord God took Abram outside and said to him, look up and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous. There's that thing we saw with Noah. Counted him as righteous and the Lord told him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you out of a people group. I brought you out of a language group. I brought you out of a nation. I brought you out of a government. And I brought you to a place to give you a brand new possession of land. I'm going to make you a new people and a new nation. Does this sound kind of New Testament to you? I'm going to make you brand new. You're going to be born again, a a nation of priests, holy and righteous, called by my name. That's what he's doing here. He's calling this guy out. 
And so the third one brings us to this thought. The nation will, here's the thought, is going to be governed by God. What God wanted to know is I, as these people, here's what's strange. Watch, this is interesting. God says to Abraham, you're going to be my peeps. I like that word. You're going to speak a language. You're going to be my people. And you're going to turn into a nation. And I'm going to give you a possession of land that's where you're going to sit. And out of that possession of land, the families of the earth will be blessed by you. Are you good with this? Yes, I am. All right, there's this one thing. What is it? I am going to be in charge of my government. This is what he says to Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty. Would he give him an option here? No, there's no option. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Sounds kind of like Noah. And I will make a covenant with you. And I will guarantee it to you for all generations. What God was going to tell Abraham here is, you're my people, you're my language, you're my children, but I am in charge of this government. There will be no king, there will be nobody. It is me. Are you clear? Are you clear with what we're talking about? I am going to rule this thing. So by the time he comes in with Moses and he picks Moses to go get the nation that has been captured by other nations and now God's people are just like falling apart here. And he sends Moses in as his mouthpiece. He doesn't send Moses in as a God. He sends Moses in as a representative of God. When I get there, what do I tell him? Oh, you tell him I sent you. I'm in charge of my people and I'm in charge of my government. I'm going to blow Pharaoh's mind. So Moses does. Here's what gets weird. But by the time we enter the kingdom, we'll talk about this in the weeks ahead, by the time we get to the kingdom, do you remember what really irritates God? (laughs) We just want a king like everybody else. And God's like, dude, I wanted to be your government. (laughs) We just want a king. That's all we want is a king. And God's like, You little whiny people. You want a king? You want a king? So you can be like all the other people out there. I've already delivered you, brought you out. I made a mock of Egypt. I've I've routed everything around you. I've blown people's minds so much that even the comment is, we remember what your God did to the Egyptians. And this is what you pay me back? You want a king? Oh, I'll give you a king. But let me tell you something, when I give you a king, he is going to take your children captive. He's going to take you into slavery. He's going to, but I'll back off and let y'all do it. And from that moment of Saul, read the Bible. It is a hellhole. In and out and up and down and captured and uncaptured and free and bound. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, captured, not captured, free, not free. And God's just sitting there going, see, man. I'll let you guys try to... So then he steps back in and says to the king, if you'll do it the way I tell you, it'll go well. But if you don't, and you're not a man after my... Get out of here. I'm going to get a man after my heart. Come here. And the man after his heart is a murdering adulteress. What? Yeah, I want that guy. How could you take the loser... You know what he's going to do. Oh, I know what he's going to do, but he's going to understand who's in charge of the government. 
because I don't need no arrogant person thinking he's telling me what to do. He goes out there and blows it. I'll deal with him with Nathan and he'll repent. We'll be good. This boy right here will understand my government. And he did. Now, this is what's starting to happen. I will confirm, Genesis 17, 7, I'll confirm my covenant with you and the descendants from generation to generation. Now watch. This is to Abraham. It's my everlasting covenant. I'll always be your God. And I'll be the God of your descendants. So what is starting to play out, I'm saying it over and over so it really sinks in. What is starting to play out is the nations have scattered. They've got a God. They've got a king. They've got a government. They've got the slaves and the subjects to run the government. And God pulls a people, pulls a language, gives them a land, calls them out, creates a nation, gives them a government where he overrides everything. Even Pharaoh's own magicians will say, we can't touch that government. That's something, that's a different God than what we know. What is God doing? Through the scattering of Babel, he's going to establish his earthly government. Not heavenly government. Earthly. It's why Jesus will say, okay, you guys want to know how to pray? All right, look, here it is. Daddy in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth See, the government of God was always to be happening on earth. We, we were to be displaying the government of God. Yeah. It's why the church is such a mock today. We don't display government. We are our own government. We do anything we want to do in the name of the Holy Ghost. There is no government anymore. So I don't want to go there. That, I felt like I was about to go Pentecostal and start preaching. I, I could feel it stirring in my belly. <laughs> All right, every government will consist of rituals and laws. If you ever wanted to know, why did God give us the book of Leviticus? Oh, Jesus. Oh, that's where we go to fight homosexuals and lesbians and tattoo people. I even had somebody tell me when I got the tattoo. They were kind. They weren't mean. They're like, don't you know what the book of Exodus says about tattoos? I said, yeah, I've read it a thousand times. I shouldn't have one. But I got one. Now, I can cheat that and go, because I'm under grace. Well, that's a very shallow answer. I'm under grace. I am. But the question becomes, why all these weird rules? You shall not mark your body. You, why? Because his people needed to be distinctly different and recognizable as different than all the other people. So when you bumped into those people, they're going, dude, why don't you have marks all over your body? Oh, dude, our God won't let us mark ourselves. You look different than us. Ah, yeah, we are. Why don't you guys eat bacon? Our God told us we can't eat bacon. Oh, dude, bacon is so good. You ever had shrimp and lobster? Oh, man, our God says we can't eat those kind of things. We can't have shrimp and lobster. Those are dirty animals. Man, your God must really have a bad day. You never had a good shrimp? Oh, man, bacon. Have you ever had bacon-wrapped shrimp? Oh, man. Now, now, what's going on 
It's not that God is trying to have an eternal testimony that you should not eat bacon and tattoos because the New Testament says whatever you pray over, eat. So that's a conflict of seemingly purpose. No, what God is doing is he's establishing that his government and his rituals and his laws are distinctly different than any other nation out there. So when these people step onto the scene, you go, something's different about you. You talk different, you eat different, you act different, you speak different, you dress different, you look different. What's the deal? What's the deal with y'all? You're not sick like we're sick. You handle your dead people differently than we do. You have rituals of how you should bury a dead person. You even have different rituals of how you should bring animals and sacrifice. We sacrifice kids. Y'all sacrifice goats. Your God's different, right? Now the reason is, is because God wanted his kids to look and smell totally different than the world. Our language was not to be like them. Our lifestyle was not to be like them. We were to be totally and distinctly separate. And yet today, Christianity is my Lord. You'd never know the difference between a sinner and a saint. Except they say, I love Jesus. But we were supposed to be different. We weren't supposed to be sick like everybody else, broke like everybody else, depressed like everybody else. Literally, if you were born again, you were to be different. Somebody was to say, what's so different about you? I'll never forget, I was in high school. I was sitting behind a girl in a math class. I didn't say anything. I just sat there. We were friends. And one day, she turned around. I was in 11th grade. She turned around. She said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, what is it? She said, you're so different than everybody else. You're always smiling. And I said, well, uh, I'm always happy. She said, but you're different. I said, well, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I didn't win her to Jesus, but I thought, here's a guy in 11th grade, the testimony of another person is you're just different. That should be the testimony of all of us. Not that my arm's different than your arm or my clothes or I wear a suit and tie, but I should be able to walk into a room and somebody sense that the, the, the aura of his spirit and his presence is, is so different around me that when I walk in the room, peace came in with you. Uh, calmness came in with you. Joy came in with you just because you walked into the room. You didn't even say anything. You just carry his presence with you. Well, that's what God is trying to do here. Now, here's the thinking. The reason it needed to be so specific, don't mark your body, don't wear torn clothes, don't, 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 the whole book of Leviticus. The reason it had to be that way is because their hearts were not changed. And if your heart's not changed, you're hopeless. So God had to clean the outside up so they would appear differently, even though inwardly they were no different than anybody else. This is why Jesus will say to the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup. Yeah, that's because we've had a thousand years doing it because that's what you told us to do back there. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I did tell you to do all that back there, but you guys have turned it into religion because now what the reason I did the outside of the cup is so you would look different so by the time I got on the scene, I could change the internal side of the cup and when I did that, you would be different. Whether you wore a robe or not or walked two miles on a Sabbath day and fell into sin because you did so. Watch this. This is the start of the ritual. 
Genesis 17. I, it, uh, I, I could go here all day long. I would have immediately said, uh, yeah, I don't want to be part of this tribe. <laughs> like it's almost like the further God went with humans, the more serious he got about your commitment. Like kid number one, Adam, hey, don't eat the fruit. Gotcha. Don't eat the fruit. <laughs> right? Gets to Noah, build me a boat. Okay, I build you a boat. Noah falls apart, gets drunk, kids go off. By the time he picks this dude, here's how we're going to know you love me. I don't want you to build me a boat or eat a piece of fruit. Pull down your pants. What? We're going to have a circumcision, buddy. Now that takes commitment. Commitment of a covenant. Let's don't just look at it so lightheartedly. By the time they come to take over Jericho, God said, oh yeah, bro, before you do it, everybody here that's a warrior, get up on the hillside of Gilgal. We're going to have a day of circumcision. And the Bible says every grown man that was a fighter walked up a hillside in line. I don't know. I'd have had to tap out. I'd like, I don't want to be part of these people. I'm going to go back to Egypt. Can you imagine standing in line there were some 20,000 fighting men, and you're in line looking up a hill. You're like, dude, what's going on up there? I don't know. I mean, I hear talk. Oh, they're not doing that. I don't know. It's what I heard. When do you think we'll be up there? I don't know, but by the time we get there, the rock will be dull. <laughs> right? 20,000 circumcisions? And then just in light, you just want to read over it in casual reading. It says, and then Joshua let him take time to heal. So you need to know that what is God doing? Why would he make them circumcised? Because God is going to know my warriors are distinctly more loyal to me than yours because I have cut the foreskin of the place where the seed comes out so that I will own the seed. So this thing becomes so powerful. Well, let's not make light of it. God's going to kill Moses. Moses. Hey, I need you to go kind of let my people go. He's like, dude, I'm in. Let my people go. Come on, honey. Let's let my people go. And God's just casually like, I think I'm going to kill him. Kill him? Well, he hadn't been circumcised. And his wife is like, hey. That guy up there that we're going, he says, time for me to circumcise you. You? You're not mad at me, are you? <laughs> like this circumcision thing we just kind of play with today, and it's just what we do medically. This was God's way to say, my people belong to me. So tight is it that I will kill you if you don't do it. And every firstborn boy is going to have it this way. Even Jesus, his own self, had to go this way. This is why Paul will say we are the circumcision but yet not of the flesh but of the spirit. It's still important to God that God will cut away the flesh to say you belong to me. There's something about dying to sinful flesh that makes the statement I belong to God. This thing of I just love Jesus but my life is filled with sin is not the way the Bible teaches the thing. If you love Jesus then your life begins to peel away the sinful flesh. 
not tolerate it. Well, just deal with it. That's me. God loves me anyway. He's be patient. He's not done with me yet. Thank God he hadn't killed us all. It's because of grace. All right. Number five, the laws and the rituals we, we enforce by kings, prophets, and priests. This is where we get into Saul and David and Solomon and all the splitting of the kingdoms and the kings and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and Judah and Jerusalem. And then all the prophets begin to come along and all the priests begin to come along. And by the time we get here, we have so far separated ourselves from Abraham that God's own people are split into factions. God's own people are fighting each other, killing each other. God's own priests have perverted themselves. You read about uh, uh, Eli, his children were perverted. They were the priests of the day were not living. Book of Judges, every time you do wrong, they're not doing right. They're doing wrong. They're not. By the time you get here, the very nation of God's government has been perverted by human government. And it just becomes a mess. Go read the stories. It's just a mess. of The way it reads in the Old Testament is a mess, and God inserts himself, and how they respond determines whether it's more of a mess or a better mess. And God just keeps inserting himself. I'm just trying to get to them until finally God's like, oh, all right, let's just go with what the plan was all along. I'm going to assert myself into the womb of a woman. By the time we get to the New Testament, you'll see the government of God there. Listen to this. Genesis 17, 4 through 6. This is my covenant with you. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm going to change your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, it will be called Abraham. For you'll be the father of many nations. And I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. God is letting us know from the beginning when I scattered you, I was going to make myself a nation of kings. I think he's looking all the way to the church, to be honest. But here's something interesting. If you want to study it, it's fun. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Like he added an A and an H. Like some people say it's no big deal. It was just a translation error. You know, everybody's got their opinion. But if you go and study the depths of the Hebrew, the moment God took A-B-R-A-M, Abram, and he changed him to Abraham, it was God inserting the Hebrew of El, meaning God. That God was inserting himself into his name so that when you said Abraham, out of him will come many nations, it would translate that out of this human being, God will empower him to birth nations. So that God himself, when you spoke his name, you would be speaking not the man, not just the human, but you would be calling forth the working of a human and a God together. Not that Abraham was God, but that God would unite himself to a human, which is why he would be called the father of faith, because in the New Testament, God becomes a human. But this is the beginning of the power. So here's the question. What is the purpose behind God singling out Abraham? A person, a language, and a nation. What is the purpose for God doing this? Here it is as we get ready to close. Two scriptures, both are apropos to the moment. Exodus. You have to fast forward in the narrative, but here's what you pick up as you fast forward. And you will be my kingdom of priests. And now we finally see this word that has so eluded us for many chapters of the Bible. 
You will be my holy nation. And this message will go around the world. And what we begin to pick up and play out through the rest of the Bible is that the distinct difference of our God to all the others is he's holy. And how that's going to play out is going to be a disaster that leads to a wonderful redemptive story. I picked you, Abraham, because I wanted a people that would become a kingdom of people, a nation of people that would be holy. It's why Peter will also allude to this, for you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation. It's what God has wanted all along. I'm holy. It's why when we get to Hebrews, without it, you won't even see me. Without it, you won't even see me. So what he does is he pulls out a group of humans to display his holiness, which is really weird because why would you pull a human to display holiness? Well, the only way we could display your holiness is to give you a bunch of rules to follow. So he gives them a bunch of rules, book of Leviticus and all through. Here's all the rules. Paul will say of himself, I was holy based on all the rules until I realized all my holiness of rules was nothing more than dumb because it didn't really touch my heart. But this is what God is unfolding. Here's Jesus. This is so powerful. Jesus replied, your mistake, talking to the Pharisees, your mistake is that you don't know the Scripture. And you don't know the power of God. Oh, they knew the rules. They knew the rituals. They knew the circumcisions. They knew the doves to bring. They knew you should not get a donkey out of a ditch on the Sabbath. Those are the rituals. They knew the rituals. They knew the rules. They were towing the line. They were doing everything. But even though they were towing the line, they missed what the real thing was. The real thing of this ritualistic rule of people of a nation is that they would display power, which was Egypt and and Pharaoh. And so Jesus picks up the thought that you don't even know the power of God. You you got the rules, but for when the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage in respect to these Sadducees, to these Essenes, to these religious people. It'll be like the angels in heaven, but now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead. Haven't you ever read this in the scriptures? Oh, get ready. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said... And this is, this is so repeated in Scripture, it's just the most casual thing. God identifies now himself. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. So that when he pulls out this man named Abraham, here's what's weird. God says, you know, I'm going to unite up with this fella. And you know how they're going to know my government? I'm going to be the God of this dude. So powerful was that, that for the rest of human history and all through the rest of Jewish history, Elohim, Adonai, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi will be referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God identified himself with a human so that the human nate could become a nation So that the nation could become a kingdom. So that the kingdom could display the holy power of God to all that follow so the world could be blessed. 
that system of the Old Testament comes to a conclusion at the resurrection of Jesus. At the resurrection of Jesus, a new people is formed, a nation of people, a kingdom of people called by his name who are holy, who will display the power of God across planet earth because they're under the government of God itself playing out now in what we call church. I present to you today, most modern American churches are nothing more than Old Testament systems of worship. We're just nations fighting against each other versus displaying the power of God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, verse 32. I'm the God of Jacob, so he's the God of the living and not the dead. You ready for this one? Go all the way back to Abraham. This, this blows people's mind. Why did God make him kill his son? Or try to. And then at the last minute, God takes the angel. and What kind of daddy would kill his kid? You know he didn't tell Sarah. Where are you going? I'm going to go kill him. <laughs> Why would God take a man and pull him out of all humans... Say to this man, your language and people group now belongs to me. And out of your descendants will come a kingdom and nation of people who will display my power. And out of your deadness of your wife's womb will come a people so great. Look up, boy. See all that? More than that. So he gets frustrated living under the government of God. Anybody ever got frustrated living under God's government? When, why, how? So he has Ishmael. And God's like, bro, I don't need you in your thinking. If we're going to do this thing, we're going to do it right. It's my government and it's the kid I pick. It's going to come through your wife. <laughs> Did she just laugh at me? Yeah. Tell her I'm coming back next year. She'll have a kid. How can she have a kid? She's 90-something years old. Don't worry about it. We've been waiting 25 years. Yeah, don't worry. Next year, about this time, you get ready. Now, out pops the baby. And what does a loving, kind-hearted God who wants to establish his government do? I have got to let the guy know that I picked that I'm different than all the gods his daddy made idols for. Because if he doesn't know who I am, this doesn't work. Hey, Abram. Yeah, Lord. Your father. Yeah, Tara. Uh-huh. He's an idol worshiper. Made idols for people, right? Yeah, he made idols for people. So you understand how everything works. Like they sacrifice their, their children to these gods to appease him. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just what they do around here. If you really want to show your loyalty to the God, you give them a child. And by offering a child, the God sees the loyalty of the subject. That's how the gods understand that their subjects are so loyal. The gods request a child. You read it through the Old Testament. They'll sacrifice with the fire all the time. This is how you prove loyalty. It's why abortion is so powerful today. It's the loyalty of Satan taking the child... For sacrifice. Uh, that was totally off the cuff, but it felt right. So watch. So what does God do? He says, look, since you understand how it works, correct? Yeah, I came out of that system. I'm here with you now. What's the deal? 
You gave me a kid, thank you, but I'm supposed to be a nation. I'm not a nation. I, I just, it's me and her and a mad secretary. Like, I don't know. They, they can't even get along. I'm stuck in the middle of them. The kids fight all the time. Okay, look, bro, before we move forward, me and you got to have a little understanding here. Okay, what is it? I need you to go up and kill your kid for me. He, here's what's weird. I don't have time to teach it, but it's a thought. He doesn't even question it. He doesn't even go, What? It's so ingrained in Abraham that loyalty to the gods is you get a kid. So he goes, sure, I'll do it. Get, come on, son, we're going. Where are we going? We're going to go up on the mountain. We're going to make a sacrifice. Hey, Dad, where is the sacrifice? I don't worry. God will provide it. You literally read it and you think that God is perverted and the, the, the man, the dad must be perverted. That God wants baby sacrifices and he's going to sacrifice a baby. Yes, he's going to sacrifice a baby because that's how you prove loyalty to the God you serve. And he wants the baby sacrifice because that's how I know loyalty. So he brings the baby up. Get ready. He ties him up. Lays him on the altar. Like It's like God's just sitting there like, what are you doing, God? He draws back the knife. And then you hear, Abram. What was God doing? In that one moment, it wasn't that God was teaching us that he is a God that likes child sacrifice. He was teaching Abraham he's distinctly different than all other gods. Because he doesn't require a child sacrifice. He will kill his own child. That's what he's establishing here. Every other God wants your children, not me. I, don't, I just wanted to see if you understood. I, I backed off. I don't want that. That's not. I just wanted you to know that I'm different. You need to know before we start this journey, I'm different than all those other gods. Now, that doesn't mean a lot right now, but what's going to play out is he does require a child sacrifice. It will just be his own, which will prove the beauty of the gospel. Here's the answer. What was the purpose of this? The purpose of building God's kingdom is to show forth the holy, righteous nature of God via a nation of people, Abraham and the Hebrews, who will be a visible reflection of His glory and power. You look at them, they're different. They smell different. They eat different. They walk different. They camp differently. They worship differently as the Most High God above all. The purpose of building God's kingdom is to show forth the holy, righteous nature of God via a nation of people who are the visible reflection of His glory and power as the Most High God of all. One final scripture. Back to Genesis 12. And the Lord said to Abram, verse 1 and 2, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you, I'll make you a nation, I'll make you famous, you'll bless others. Here's the conclusion of what I think the promised land, promised Abram, was going to teach us. That God is going to form a nation. It's going to be a nation of priests and kings. It's a nation holy and alive. And it's a nation that reflects God's nature. So this, that one thought, go to the land I show you. What this land is going to do is develop a nation of priests and kings that are wholly different than all other nations that reflect God's nature. What does this have to do with the rest of the Bible? Well, the rest of the Bible is we're going to find out that that nation of people 
who are priests and kings, who are holy and alive, who reflect God's nature as the church. I'll teach this later, but for the thought tonight, just to help you, we are the government of God right now on planet Earth. Right now, we're the government of God, holy differently than everybody else. And why was this important? Because every nation, every government, every birth, every seed, every father that's going to have a child had to have a father, and Jesus becomes the head of it. And out of Jesus, Abraham, the father of our faith, the nations, out of Jesus, the head, comes the church. And we'll end our whole teaching of this session of the kingdom next spring by looking at what does the government of the church look like today as we move forward. Amen. Let me pray for you.